Welcome to the Garbage Pod. One pod, one load of garbage. 29 and 28. Remanded in custody. There's something curious about this broadcast. Hello everybody, welcome to episode 21 of the Garbage Pod. It's quite an exciting episode for the crew and I, uh, because it's something we've been looking forward to for quite some time, ever since we knew uh, this was going to take place. Earlier in the week, we uh, had uh, a chat and a little bit of an interview with somebody that we grew up with on television uh, in the 80s and 90s, Uh, and all will be revealed in a moment. Uh, first of all, I'd like to say a couple of thank yous. Firstly, Jonathan O'Callaghan from All About Space magazine. Although he couldn't help us out with the Yuri's Night episode, he managed to source me a copy of All About Space issue one. Also, the guys at Space Vidcast, uh, in conjunction with Jeffrey from Night.net, for sending me one of the official Yuri's Night t-shirts. Right, I think it's about time we got on with this episode. I can now reveal who our special guest is. It's the one and only Gareth Jones. Welcome on board the Garbage Pod, sir. Uh, thank you very much. It's nice to be on someone else's podcast for a change instead of my own. <laughs> well, she's not exactly the Millennium Dustbin, but she does us. <laughs> well remembered. I'm not sure how many people remember the name of the spacecraft I travelled around in in 1986 to 88, so well done, Mark. Before we start, I'd like to uh, just introduce you to uh, the rest of the guys. Okay, we have uh, Adri Mallows. Hello, Adri. Hello, Gareth. It's an absolute pleasure to speak to you, sir. Oh, man. Likewise. Thank you very much. And, of course, John Witts. Hey, John. Hi, Gareth. How you doing? Bad. Where are you in the world? Letchworth, just sort of 30 miles north of London. Yeah, well, I'm in uh, Stoke Newington, so I'm, uh, I'm on the north side. You can see your house from here. and uh adri's in uh in aylesbury all right all very nice i spent uh uh, a week filming up in aylesbury a long time ago doing the um uh, a a show called what's so good about roald dahl i I spent a week in his house filming uh, he lives up near aylesbury i forget the name of the village what's it called Um, princess risborough uh is that what it is i can't remember now yeah that's where that's where his museum is yeah yeah. Right. I've got one in Aylesbury as well, hasn't he? The kids' museum. Uh, that's the yeah. It's more of a gallery thing, so that kids can yeah. draw like um, oh, what's his name? What was who was the name of the illustrator on the Roll Doll books? Um, uh, it, I know who you mean. Quentin, um, was it Quentin Blake? It was Quentin. Well done. Well done. I, I I'm writing a book myself at the moment, and I I cited him as the sort of design I'm looking for the illustration in this book that I'm writing so uh, yeah fresh in the brain he also did the illustrations in uh, David Walliam's children's books that he's uh, oh, writing oh yeah yeah the, with the boy in the dress and um, what's the other one called um, was there a my... girl called Filth or something like that that's it my, my, my children have read those they love them to bits but yeah because he because he loves Roald Dahl so he wanted to try and give it the same kind of feel so uh, that's why he asked Quentin Blake to come in he did well. 
Right. Um, first of all, a lot of our uh, listeners are not from these shores, so I'm not too sure uh, how well known you are out of these waters. <laughs> well, uh, th- there are pockets uh, of familiarity, but you're right. Mainly my career has been UK focused. But one of one of the programmes I made, How To, was shown uh, in English speaking markets all over the world. You know, New Zealand, Canada, Australia. Uh, and in fact, it was dubbed into Spanish and ran <laughs> very successfully. I kid you not, in South America, and I still get messages from people in South America saying that they loved uh, Como a... I forgot what it's called in Spanish. It's called How and Why, and my Spanish isn't very good. That's why they had to dub me. <laughs> How would you describe yourself? Because you've, had, you've done so many things in your career. Um, yeah, that's a tricky one, because it does vary. Um a bit like someone's accent, depending who you're talking to. You know, <laughs> um, I describe myself as a science communicator primarily these days, but I think that's probably inaccurate. I'm, I'm sort of a factual communicator. There are a lot of people on television uh, because they can tell jokes or they can sing songs or you know juggle or something. But I, I guess I was on TV because I can enthuse about facts that I've picked up along the way. My father was an electronics engineer, and he got me very interested in engineering, science, and technology when I was young. And so, you know, he used to sort of do to me what I've done to, you know, the UK television children's audience for 25 years. He would infuse about things, you know. So um, how would I describe myself? TV presenter, uh, enthusiast, I like cars, I like uh, spacecraft and Star Trek and lots of other things as well. <laughs> Some of you out there might know Gareth by a name that was used in his earlier career, which was Gaz Top, but I know you're not too keen on that being used too frequently. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I, I don't mind uh, at all uh, admitting that I was Gaz Top a long time ago. No, I'm very proud of that uh, ridiculously haired, lisping ex roadie I was when I first appeared on television. Uh, it's just that um, from about 1989, I, I returned to using my real name, Gareth Jones, primarily for two reasons. I wanted people to know I was a Welshman, and I wanted people to try and take me seriously. I don't think anyone ever did. Uh, uh, but the idea was that maybe one day I might get to present the BBC's flagship science programme, Tomorrow's World, that was always an ambition. And I figured, you know, they're never going to give that gig to someone called Gaz Top, are they? It's just too silly. So I figured, yep, that time I was Gareth Jones. Gaz Top was only ever a nickname anyway. Yeah, they gave uh, a similar kind of programme to a guy called Dallas Campbell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which I believe is an anagram of uh, something very sensible. <laughs> Now, um, where did the name Gaztop come from? Um, well, I was a roadie uh, for a band back in, I think it was 1979 or 1980. Uh, they were called Seventeen back then, the band, but they, they later became The Alarm. And uh, Mike Peters, who's the lead singer of the band, and I went to see the Sex Pistols movie, The Great Rock and Roll Swindle, together. And there's a line in that film which goes, um, it's it sort of delivered a bit like a Pathé newsreel. It goes, and those four lovable spiky tops, the Sex Pistols, signed their contract with EMI Records outside Buckingham Palace. Palace. And um, 
I, it made me giggle the idea of lovable spiky tops. And at the time, I had spiky topped hair. You know, it was the it was the eighties or the late seventies. Very spiky hair, and and so did Mike Peters. And so uh, I started calling him Spiky Top, and he started calling me Gagsy Top. Gagsy being short for Gareth, and that became Gaz Top. And then when the fans of the band uh, collected autographs, not only of the band, but real hardcore fans got autographs from the road crew as well. I, as a joke, I started signing it Gaz Top, you know, <laughs> like that was my stage name or something. And it sort of stuck, and I just became known as Gaz Top, the alarm roadie. And when I started on television, I, I took the name with me. So you must have rubbed shoulders with some serious uh, musos in, in those days then. Yeah, yeah, we, uh, you know, it was the 80s, so here comes a long list of 80s musicians that uh, uh, The Alarm and 17 uh, played with. Um, we played with the Boomtown Rats, The Beat, Flock of Seagulls, Dexy's Midnight Runners, uh, The Stray Cats, and U2. And I actually ended up being a bit of a U2 roadie for six weeks in America on the war tour wow. uh, because The Alarm was a support band for U2. Uh, as soon as The Alarm had finished, I then became Bono's roadie for the second part of the gig. Uh, so I, I know those lads. Well, we, we knew them very well anyway before they sort of broke. That's why I got um, pulled on board. So I've noticed they're all, all bands with big hair. <laughs> well, it was of the period, and I sort of fitted in well with my hair. So, yeah, no, you know, completely normal in those days to have hair, as it is to be uh, grey now, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how did the transition from being a roadie to being a television presenter come about? It, it happened very quickly, the first clue was when I was in the States, the, the Alarms record label in the States, IRS, also had a TV production wing, and they made a program for MTV in the States that was called The Cutting Edge. And because it was the Alarms label's TV program, every time the Alarm were in the States, they would interview them. And, of course, this was fine for, like, three or four visits. But then um, after that, they were kind of getting desperate things to talk to them about and once uh, one of the members of the band said no no don't don't interview us this time uh, talk to Gaz you know he'll cook you a, a meal he'll do a spag ball or something and tell you some good rock and roll stories which is you know I, I used to feed the band when we all lived together as well um, and so they invited me to do this and on the day or the, the week that we were supposed to do this our tour was rescheduled and we left Los Angeles and had to go over to New York to play with the Pretenders so um that gig that I'd been asked to do, I, I, I had to let them down. I couldn't do it. But it, it planted in my mind the idea that, well, maybe I could do some TV if American TV is interested in talking to me. But it was only sort of the back of the mind idea. I was very happy as a roadie. You know, I was traveling the world, uh, playing rock and roll with my four best mates in the world. You know, it doesn't get better than that. And getting paid for it, of course. Excellent. But... Um, uh, when I got back to the UK a few years later, a couple of years later, a old pal of mine who used to be in a band with me in North Wales 
I had been for a screen test for a new music channel called Music Box starting up in the UK. He didn't get the job. He said, no, you should go for it because, you know, we used to do you theatre and you together and I know you can perform and I, I know you've got stories to tell about rock and roll. Go down. So uh, I marched into this office for a company called Music Box in London and uh, they said that they, having interviewed me, they wanted to do a screen test and about three or four days later, I got my own very first uh, TV program, my own TV show. The whole thing took about four days, the transition from roadie to TV presenter. And it wasn't like a deliberate career long-term thing. You know, it just sort of, okay, this is what I'm doing now. And that was in January 1985, and I'm more or less still broadcasting some uh, almost 30 years later. Wow, so that was well before the launch of uh, MTV in the UK then. Yes, it was, yeah. Um, Music Box started in the UK in 84. I joined in 85 and did it till 86 when uh, I made the transition to uh, Get Fresh, the Saturday morning program I did in the UK. I mean, I've I've seen some clips of uh, some of the stuff that was on uh, the Music Box because I I wasn't uh, much aware of it because I didn't have satellite TV back then. But, um, (laughs) yeah, I've I've noticed on, on TV Arc... Uh, oh, yeah. There is a an outtakes reel <laughs> from Music Box on there. Excellent. So um, I might have to see if I can obtain that for the um, to go on the show notes. <laughs> with, uh-huh. with yeah, the yeah. You put a link up. Yeah, on your page. That's a great idea. Um, <laughs> I, is, it, is it mainly the sort of uh, the musicians and the artists um, or, or, or the presenters? There are. Or... There's a lot of pre- presenter, shall we say, foul ups on there. Yeah. Uh, Excellent. <laughs> I haven't seen that. I must look out for it. Have I any? <laughs> Not as much as some of the others, I must admit. <laughs> yeah, what <one laughs> there's, there's a lot of um, uh, Simon Potter on there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, bless. <laughs> bless uh, and, and Nino's on there a lot as well. So, better, uh, who quite often, I believe, um, he gets people going up to him and saying, Are you gas top? Because we did have very similar hair back in the 80s. Uh, he just came across to me as some kind of, um, I don't know, some kind of gigolo. He looked like he had that look about him. <laughs> he was uh, he was very Latin. He was, yes. Preto, like that. And uh, a lovely chap, actually. A very soft and gentle man. A very nice guy. Got a lot of time for me now. Didn't he do uh, one of the remakes of, um, or the revamp, should I say, of uh, Mr. and Mrs.? I think he, he did. I think he did, yes. Well remembered, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I thought so. So what kind of people did you actually interview or have you got any interesting uh, stories about uh, some of the uh, interviews or whatever you you, uh, conducted on on the music box? I I remember uh, interviewing Gary Newman and really not wanting to talk about music at all. I mean, I was a fan of Gary and still am a fan of electronic music Definitely Gary Newman. But uh, I knew that at the time, you know, he was getting into aircraft. He had enough money to buy an old Harvard. And uh, I really just wanted to talk to him about aircraft. <laughs> I, I seem to remember getting told off at some point. You know, no one else knew what you were talking about. It's okay to mention these things, but I was genuinely interested. So um, Gary Newman... Uh, it was always very tricky interviewing the alarm when they turned up because I knew everything that they were doing. They were, they were my best mates. That, that was very hard. Um, do you remember a band called King Kurt? 
they were sort of a they call themselves a psycho Billy band. Yes. Been, uh, out yes. of control. Um, um, they, they were very hard to interview. That was that was a very tough interview. Even Ian McCulloch from um, Echo and the Bunnymen, who I got to know, uh, Ian, I was very very drunk on an interview one day, and it was a hopeless <laughs> interview. But the best thing about being on Music Box was I got to interview my you know number one heroes of all time. Uh, the members of the band known as Slade. Uh, You know, I interviewed Noddy, Don, Jim and Dave uh, and then managed to organise getting them in for a a big interview, in in which case I turned into a a documentary about Slade called Perseverance, which I believe is on YouTube somewhere. Oh, right. uh, of which um, Slade fans argue is the definitive Slade documentary, which I, as a Slade fan, I'm enormously proud of. Uh, and that was in, like in my first year of television, so I was making it up as I went along. But to make a program about your heroes and then to get to know your heroes, that, that was the best thing about Music Box. Just recently watched a documentary on BBC4 about um, Slade, actually. It was quite interesting because it, it just seems really weird that Noel Gallagher is really into Slade. Yeah, he's a huge Slade fan. And you can hear it. You can hear it. Just the, the, the slur on his guitar is a bit like um, Noddy Holder's style at the start of uh, Take Me Back Home or Come On Feel The Noise. You, you can hear that drag across the strings. Well, they did, they did a cover of it, didn't they? Come On Feel The Noise. Yeah. Uh, and they're proud as well. I, I'm very pleased. But Noel Gallagher rates How Does It Feel as his uh, number one uh, of all time uh, Slade song. And I wouldn't disagree. It's a tremendous song. Because I, I, I remember on this documentary that uh, Dave Hill was going on about the uh, where the name and the title of Come On Feel The Noise came from. And it is literally the, the, the sound of the, the crowd. Yeah, that <laughs> was me. That was me. I was making most of that sound, screaming my head <laughs> off. You can hear Slade in Gareth Jones on Speed. You, know, you can hear Slade in uh, Oasis, and you can hear Slade in my car podcast, Gareth Jones on Speed, the signature ident uh, for the yes. programme, because it goes... Crichton, what are you doing, man? Oh, sir... I'm listening to the Garbage Pod. It's a podcast I found in the podosphere. From the the music box, it leads us to the subject that uh, made me believe that Twitter works, um, yep. mainly because I just started using Twitter and I wanted to get hold of the theme tune for the TV show that Carol hosted called Get Fresh. Yep. Um, so I put a tweet out asking if anybody knew where I could source it from. And uh, within 30 minutes, I received a reply from Gareth asking me for my email address so that he could send me an MP3 of the theme tune. Yeah, well, I like to help out when I can. <laughs> and uh, it was amazing because you were, you were telling me that the, the theme tune had been composed by none other than um, Mick Jones from The Clash. That's right. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. and Big Audio Dynamite. Yeah. I was enormously proud of that. You know, um, I never set out to be a kids' TV presenter. You know, I wanted to be either the first Welshman on the moon or Jimmy Lee, the bass player in Slade. So uh, when I did eventually get pulled out to do kids' television for ITV, the fact that this was quite a cool, dark program, you know, we we were in this very giga-looking spacecraft, uh, and the fact that the theme tune was written by a member of the clash you know that made everything okay for me that allowed me to transition to kids tv mick jones 
when uh, Big Audio Dynamite folded up and he revamped the group and called them Bad Two. Yeah. Um, which I actually like their first album, The Globe, as bad too, because it, it, you listen to the album, there's so many samples from classic tracks. There's The Who, there's Ultravox, there's Kate Bush. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, in fact, on the uh, on this latest project, Carbon Silicon, which is Mick Jones and Tony James from CC Sputnik, they, they use a Slade sample. Uh, come off feel the noise, actually, I think. I know Mama, it's, it's a sample from Mama, we're all crazy now. And, you know, for me, a combination of Mick Jones and Slade and CC Sputnik all in one, I couldn't be happier. Yeah, I um, a friend of mine from work actually told me uh, about them, and I was I was like, whoa, I've got to hear this, you know, Mick Jones, and uh, I, I just had this this Zig Zig Sputnik Mick Jones crossover i thought where can this go <laughs> yeah yeah it makes perfect sense if you think about it i mean they're old allies though too they go way back to uh, uh generation x of course and chelsea uh, i think uh let me think about this was tony james in the original lineup of chelsea the punk band quite possibly and chelsea and the clash were two sides of the same coin a, a long time ago so yeah they've been mates a very long time it was Generation X. That was Billy Idol, wasn't it? That's right. Yeah, yeah. Billy Idol was a singer. Um, Martin Durwood Andrews is that his name on guitar? Mm-hmm. Tony James on bass. I forget who the drummer was completely, but love Gen X. Excellent. What was it like working on a Saturday morning TV show of that scale? I mean, before you, you had all these classic shows that you had to yeah. fill the shoes of, as as it were. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Um, the only one that really mattered to me previously was Tiswatch, oh, which absolutely. was a really anarchic children's program of the late 70s, early 80s. And uh, it, it left a lasting effect on children's TV. You know, it brought gunge pretty much to television. And there was some gunge in, in Get Fresh, but it was a very different show. It had a strong factual base, bizarrely, um, Get Fresh, whereas Tiz Wars was a studio-based program. Get Fresh went around the country and was made by a different ITV company every week. One week it was HTV in Wales, next week it was Scottish Television, then TSW in, in the Southwest. And so it was a bit ropey around the edges because, you know, no one ever got to do the programme long enough to get it right. Everyone had a go and thought, well, we'll get it better next time. And um, we would go and, and do items about the region that we were in you know when we're in scotland we do a thing about bagpipes and kilts and when we were in devon we do a thing about making ice cream and butter and uh when we're in wales we do something about uh, well i remember doing something about satellites in wales actually because uh swansea university were involved in the development of uh uh, the Giotto space probe, if I wow. recall, back in 86. So, yeah, I was doing factual stuff even then, even though it was a Saturday morning entertainment show. I'd already started to explain stuff to people, and that's what I tend to do even to this day. I've, I've actually found a clip from Get Fresh. It was an episode where you uh, were going to be talking to uh, a specialist about space exploration and a former shuttle astronaut, and um, you seemed very over excited <laughs> really the, was it oh, wow i don't even remember this who was it, it wasn't robert overmeyer was it i the, think uh, it was yes 
Oh, right. Really? So, How about that? And, uh, Do you know, I'd completely forgotten that. Is that on <laughs> YouTube somewhere? Well, the, the interview, I don't know about the interview, but the actual start-up of the programme when, you, when uh, you, you, you're there and you've got this book about the space shuttle and you're sort of... <laughs> You can see in your seat the energy as you want to talk about it and go, oh, subtle and excellent, you know. And I wonder, actually, if that was from Sunday Get Fresh, which was the studio-based recorded show that we did. Saturday Get Fresh was live, but we did do, for the second and third season, a whole bunch of other programmes that were done in a studio in Carlisle. And I interviewed Nigel McKnight, who had written a book called Shuttle, and he'd, uh, he later arranged for me to go and have a tour of John F. Kennedy Space Center. Uh, so I went into the VAB and I went into the orbiter processing facility and uh, I even got to touch Atlantis on a later trip. Wow. Uh, but he sort of opened up NASA to me. He gave me a contact there. And uh, I, I, it's, again, one of the great pleasures, like... Like you, I know someone who's passionate about space exploration. Absolutely. To have the opportunity to have access to the most exciting place on the planet, John F. Kennedy Space Center, was a dream come true. Because I've I've been to uh, KSC as well, uh, yeah. and Adri has been to Johnson, haven't you, Adri? Uh, yeah, I have. Yeah, I went to uh, Houston Space Center about three years ago now. Fantastic experience, and uh, got the grand tour, and got to sit in mission control or the old mission control, and yeah, yeah, phenomenal. Wow! Oh, did did they have any space hardware there? Because I like space hardware. The one thing I I remember the most actually is um, going into a hangar where they've got a disused uh, rocket, and it's just ridiculously big. You can't comprehend the size of it till you see it in person. It's one of yeah. the uh, like like they've got at uh, Kennedy. It's one of the Saturn Fives. It's uh, Apollo Twenty, isn't it? I think at um, uh, at Johnson. What would have been Apollo Twenty? I think. <laughs> yeah, it could have been actually. Yeah, yeah it's, it's just phenomenal. Great experience. Great day out. Because um, I was out there for uh, the launch of uh, STS One Hundred and One. Uh, back in 2000 and uh, it was just an amazing feeling more than anything else you've seen a shuttle launch live where yeah. were you for it virtually right by the uh the countdown oh. clock wow that's about so, as close uh, as you can get yeah isn't it? yeah well, we were more worried about the alligators more than anything else because yeah. you can say those from where we were <laughs> It's interesting what you say about being a feeling. I was describing someone to someone the other day how I'd witnessed, I think it was an Atlas II uh, launch uh, many years ago when I was in Florida. And uh, you feel it sort of popping and crackling on your face. Yeah. You know, it, it is, apart from being an emotional feeling, there is a, a tangible physical thing when the the ground shakes and you feel the sound rather than simply hear it. it and that was just a, a little old atlas. I can't imagine what those two SRBs and uh, the SSMEs would have sounded like. The feel of it, it was almost like somebody punching you in the chest. It was really an unusual feeling. Um, wow. Well. <laughs> you, you can't really describe it and that was a shuttle and I thought to myself how would a Saturn V have been yeah yeah wouldn't you love to hear those what do you call them F, J1 engines F1 engines F1s yeah F1s just tearing away at the fabric of uh, space time is, which is what they do really I think well, th this is what I'm looking forward to because when um, SpaceX launched this um, Falcon Heavy yeah, because the the Falcon Nine, obviously the 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 nine actually is the amount of Merlin engines that are on it. Uh, so you've got nine engines now. The Falcon Heavy is supposed to have twenty three. 
genius. <laughs> I love their approach. You know, rather than develop a, a, a rocket motor and then develop a bigger version, then develop a bigger version, then develop a bigger version, which is expensive and all that de- the development time, they develop one motor which works well, then strap it to another one, yeah. then strap that to another one, strap that to, and th- you're maximizing your um, development money in doing that. It's, it's similar to the model used by uh, the former Soviet space program. You know, the, uh, what do we call it, the SL-16, the uh, Zoyas launcher. Yeah, the Soyuz, is, yeah. is basically that, a bunch of small motors. I mean, you think about that. I mean, that, that rocket has been going since the 1960s, and it's still going strong. Not only is it going strong, but it can now get you to the International Space Station faster than any other rocket on Earth. Yeah, how, the uh, maths worked out, haven't they? I, I I don't know if the other guys know about this, but recently they've they've reconfigured how they were going to get to the space station. They've taken a different route, as it were, um, uh, where it used to take two days to get to the space station. They can now do it in six and a half hours. I, I reckon the, the way that they're achieving this is that they have uh, actually invented warp drive. And what they're doing is they're <laughs> folding the space between Kazakhstan and the point 300 miles up where the ISS orbits and, and really jump that, that, that void. They're building a small wormhole, basically. Well, that's the only way they could possibly do this, in my opinion. Yeah, something to do with dark matter somewhere along the line. I oh, feel. it's always dark matter. <laughs> But, um, I mean, even Ariane Space have got um, the Soyuz now as well. Um, from- That's right. They launched that from Guyana. In fact, I wrote a format for a television program recently called uh, Space on Earth, uh, which is essentially a tour of what is, in my opinion, some of the most exciting places on Earth where they launch spacecraft. And at French Guyana, the reason for going to French Guyana was to stand next to the new pit that they've built for the Soyuz over there and go, look. They're launching Russian rockets. Europeans are launching Russian rockets in South America. How international is that, you know? <laughs> uh, and then to go to, um, uh, I forget the name of the Chinese launch facility, but I'd oh. love to see uh, Shenzhou being launched. Uh, I, I just China. love the way that when that's on the platform, the, the way that the, the different stages open up on the gantries, they just... It's gorgeous, it, isn't it? It's weird. It, I've never seen anything like it. And the fact I, I love I love the Chinese attitude to manned space flight as well because whereas um, uh, you know the, the American uh, space launches you know everything is big talk five four three two one and the Russian launches they're all very damped down it's all very okay please to go on space now but the Chinese they do it happily they applaud and they cheer and they wave from their their capsule as they're being launched into space and that's a wonderful thing to witness if you look at the the amount of space or not space the amount of time that it's taken the Chinese to get where they are now it's they're amazing they're going to have uh, warp drive themselves in less than six months at present uh, <laughs> rates of development aren't they I really do think if um, we do go back to the moon it's going to be the Chinese who get there first well they've set a target I believe of um, certainly orbiting the moon by 2020 uh, how they will achieve that, I'm not sure whether they're just going to send one of their Shenzhou's with the, um, what's that little orbital space station that they've got attached to it oh. into a uh, sort of an Apollo 8 
free return trajectory or perhaps an Apollo 13 free return trajectory. But as soon as they attempt a landing on the moon, you can guarantee America won't let them do that and will need to be there first. So Mm. it's good news. Well, it is because all this uh, what I call new space, commercial space as as it's like, it started a new space race. Yeah, uh, that's right. That's the premise of my program, Space on Earth, that the space race is back on. It's just that no one's told you it started yet. (laughs) And what with these, um, uh, I don't know if you've heard about these companies that are now asking people to start crowdfunding for um, uh, asteroid mining. Yeah, well, it's it's a long shot, but I love uh, expanding the, uh, the, the limits of, possibilities and uh, if we really can mine asteroids that's a very interesting theory but what will it do to the value of precious metals on earth that we is suddenly discover problem. a new supply uh, it could cause a, a big financial crash on earth in my opinion yeah, interesting it could well do but i mean it's not the only reason for them mining the asteroids because they're looking for also for different new forms of fuels and things that that or help them to get to Mars and, and yeah, it's all very self-serving. If we go to space in order to keep us going to space, then in my books, that's a good reason to go to space. Well, yeah, absolutely. Why not? Right, I could go on for ages talking about yeah. space. To be honest, with you. <laughs> yeah, we've got to wrap this soon. It's it's half an hour. Those poor people listening are going to be bored, aren't they? <laughs> I try not to make any episode of my car podcast longer than about 30 minutes because at that point at least I know people are perhaps getting thirsty or need the toilet. <laughs> well, I think we, we should talk about a little bit about um, your, your current projects that you're involved with. Yeah. For example, your, your podcast. Yeah, I've started making a car podcast uh, called Gareth Jones on Speed uh, back in... I think it was 2005 we did the uh, the first season. So this is now season nine. And it's an extraordinary hit. I'm, I'm very pleased that along the way I've been involved in some programs. It's been a big hit. Get Fresh was a big hit. How Two was a big hit. And uh, it seems that on speed is as well. You know, we, we, we had something like 600,000 uh, downloads last year. Uh, which is quite an achievement for something which, you know, is recorded in my living room uh, with a, a, a bit of enthusiasm and the desire to get it out there and very little support. But um, it, it's a bit of a hit. It's usually number two in the iTunes uh, audio automotive podcast chart, which wow. is tremendous news. Wow. That's amazing. Because... Um... Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very proud, but we put a lot of effort into it. You know, uh, uh, many podcasts are simply two or three people just chatting, but we, we, we do the chat thing, three people chatting, but we also do sketches and songs and interviews. You know, we, we, we go places and we hear the sound of cars. You know, it, it's, a, it's an overproduced podcast, if I'm honest. You know, not many shows, bespoke podcasts have this amount of... Uh, production time put into them and you know i maybe i spend too much time on it but it's the only thing i know because um i I know your love for motor racing is uh it's quite extensive really um and and i know adri wanted to uh ask you a couple of things about uh motor racing didn't you adri uh yes please yeah gareth if i may just thoughts on on formula one really it's just with everything that's obviously happened over the last couple of grand prix i just wanted to get your take and and thoughts on um sebastian vettel and and team orders in formula one ah well um 
I, uh, I, I won't answer that because that is a topic of conversation uh, which uh, I recorded last night for the next episode of Gareth Jones on Speak. <laughs> right, okay. and, you know, it's, it's a big part of the programme. So if anyone wants to know my thoughts on that, um, they're very clear in that programme. Uh, but um, I think Formula One's in good shape at the moment. And what I will say is that, yes, he probably was naughty doing what he did, but it's been great for Formula One because it's created such a stir, such a controversy, that it's part of the backstory. It's part of the soap of Formula One. My initial love for Formula One is because, basically, it's just an engineering show. And I you know, I, I, I love the engineering side. But the, the backstory, the soap opera that goes with it is what keeps you coming back for more. And I, I love the, the whole drama of... Uh, multi-21 as they called it. It, it it's been great it almost takes you back i actually um i watched senna for the first time on on friday night and it kind of takes you takes you back not necessarily the the quality of it but the whole senna prost rivalry and the uh, animosity between the two of them towards the end yeah i mean you're absolutely right uh, ruthlessness will only ever result in one outcome. Uh, and if you're ruthless enough, you can be successful. I've seen that in television and radio from people I've worked with. <laughs> and it's no different in the cutthroat sport that is Formula One. And uh, I think uh, Vettel probably wants to carve himself out as a Senna, a Schumacher, someone who will stop at nothing in order to achieve true greatness. And, but, but at what cost? That's all I'm saying. That's it, because the thing um, I picked up as well from from watching Senna was, it was whilst he was that on the track. When you look at him in the the drivers' press conferences, you only have to look at when he made the big fuss about taking the tyres out from one of the corners, where um, eventually Prost ended up going off and potentially would have had a bad accident flying off into the tyres. Yeah, I mean the devil's in the detail. Take care of the pennies and the pounds look after themselves. If you have that sort of attention to detail, uh, it will work for you in, in the long run, I would think, if you think about everything. Absolutely. Yeah, Thank you very much for that, Gareth. Oh, Andrew, uh, I would talk about F1 all day, but that's what I do on Gareth Jones on Speed, so perhaps I shouldn't hear. <laughs> but no, that, I'll ex- make sure I check that out. Excellent. Sure. Excellent plug for the show, though. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, you know, I, I, something I learned from a book many years ago, uh, a book you might want to read called uh, Expensive Habits, written by a man called Simon Garfield, which was about rock and roll. And in it, he makes this wonderful statement. He says, hits don't happen they are made. And that's what Vettel's doing right now. And that's what I've always done with Gareth Jones on speed. I worked hard at making it a hit because it what, you know, isn't going to happen organically. And if you do that, you've got to, you give it its best chance. And I can see that you're doing the same in the garbage pod too. Well done. Yeah, it's it's been a long time coming, to be honest with you. I mean, uh, it was an idea that has been buzzing around my head since probably 2009 and we went live in 2011 and uh, it's been growing and and this year I, I've decided to, to try and make this the uh, kind of a, a podcaster's podcast if you like uh-huh. so that I can um, you know endorse other, other podcasts and that they can come online and the garbage pod can hopefully be brought to another audience and whoever I've got on on the show uh, their podcasts can be brought to our audience as well excellent plan good luck with it you know it is a community podcasters 
work in isolation and uh you know uh, this is perhaps the nearest thing we're ever going to get to a union doing something like this so thank you very much for the opportunity to talk about it on here and uh, i'll give you a plug on twitter some point too thank you and um, thanks for being on the show gareth you've been an absolute star um my absolute and utter pleasure thank you very much mark cheers john and cheers andrew and thank, you, thank you very much, you very much. and you're, you're always welcome to come again uh, whenever you like Cool. Thanks, man. Uh, and I suppose we're going to sign off with the not that town for now. Just a simple see ya. Thanks. Take care, Gareth. Bye. Gareth, bye. So there you have it. Gareth Jones, absolute legend. And thank you very much, sir, for coming on the show. And I hope everyone enjoyed this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. <laughs> Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of The Garbage Pod. Visit www.thegarbagepod.weebly.com for the show notes for this or any other episode of The Garbage Pod or TGP Extra. Just look for The Garbage Pod show section in the menu. While you're on the website, why not have a nose about? You can find a little bit more about me and the rest of the crew and find out what's going on in the podosphere by reading the blog and much, much more. Let us know what you think of the show. Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com Because your input is our output. Or you can use the social media icons at the top of the website, which include Twitter and Facebook. If you would like to subscribe to the show, you could do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and now via YouTube. If you look on the right-hand side of the show's page, the blog, or even the video vault, You'll see a little button there that says donate. If you like what we do and you feel that you could give us a little something just to help us out a bit, we would be most appreciative. And don't forget, spread the word. Thanks for listening and I'll speak to you again soon. Take care. The Garbage Pod is a Spamhead production. I don't know if he's still there. I'm here. Yeah, oh, here. <laughs> heart stopped for a second then. <laughs> Did it cut out? Again? Yeah, no worries.